0: Thank you for checking out the Faith City Church Podcast. We believe that you'll be blessed by today's message.
1: Let's get started this morning. Um, How many know that when we come together, this is a time where we get to really focus and center on God's will for our life, God's purpose for our life? It's a time where we can really recenter ourselves because how many know sometimes you're going through the week, you go through adversity, you go through stuff, and it can kind of knock you off kilter a little bit. And have you ever found yourself responding out of that rather than who you truly are? And so, you know, it's, sometimes it's a struggle to remind yourself of who you are and whose you are. We, we sing those songs. We talk about that from here all the time because I know that, especially in Western culture, it's go, 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 busy, 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 adversity, adversity, adversity. And these things come at you. You deal with life issues. And sometimes it's so easy to kind of just go, what do I do? Why am I here? What's my purpose? And so I do believe that Sunday mornings are a time where we can come together and we can refocus on what that purpose is in life. Now, last week, we ended a series called I Choose. How many were here for some of that? If you haven't heard any of it or you'd like to re-listen, you can do so on both the website, facecity.tv. Just go to Michigan campus. Uh, the drop-down hit messages, and they're all right there. We've got an archive of a couple years now. Um, Also, if you have Apple Podcasting, you can just look up Face City, you can subscribe to it there, and you'll get notified if you turn the notifications on every time. And I want to talk about the subject of salt and light. Say salt and light. Jesus speaks about this in the Gospel of Matthew, and it's chapter 5. Now, Jesus is giving this, this pretty big talk to this group of people that have gathered, and we know of it. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. How many have heard of the Sermon on the Mount? And so towards the end of delivering uh, the Sermon on the Mount, he says this in verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. Think about this. You are the salt of the earth. Does he say you might be? Does he say be like? Does he say I am? These are easy. He says you are, right? Are you with me this morning? You are the salt of the earth. But look at this. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by God. Oh. Huh. I was wondering if you any attention. By who? Who tramples over it? Ah. See, something's being said here. Jesus is talking to a group of people about how, how life should be lived, what it looks like to live out of kingdom. And then he says, you are... Now you might be, he says, you are the salt of the earth. But listen, if you lose that taste, that salty taste, that seasoning, he says, there's nothing better. I mean, there's nothing else we can do but throw you out and be trampled underfoot by men, not God. But look at this. Verse 14. You are the what? Light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So the other day, I was walking through a friend of mine's house. He had he's just built this brand new house and There's this this view, when you walk through, it's this huge open floor plan with like kitchen and living room, just huge. And when you walk up, there's these massive picture windows. And when you look out, you can look across just like trees and just, it's beautiful. But he says, now look in the distance. And this was during the day. So we looked in the distance. He says, now, can you see the tower? Can you see kind of the top of the the buildings? I was like, yeah. He goes, that's Fenton. I'm like, no way. Because, you know, sometimes you get disoriented when you're out in the country. You're not sure where you are. He says, you should see it at night completely lit up and I thought what a beautiful view but as I was reading the scripture and Jesus says that you are the light of the world a city set on a hill cannot be hidden why because in darkness when you turn on the lights you can see everything so Jesus is saying you're just like that city set on a hill look at this verse 15 nor does anyone light or he says nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket but on what? A lampstand and gives it light to all and gives light to all who are in the house. In other words, if you put a light on and you turn a lamp on, it's for a reason. Is the reason to be covered up? No, the reason is to light everyone's way. Verse 16, let your light, say your light, shine before men, say men. This is interesting. In such a way, now I love this wording here. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. Now, sometimes the word works can seem like a dirty word if you're like in the grace camp, right? Like, what do you mean? There's work to do? Absolutely. But what's the motivation for the work? So he's saying that live your light or shine your light before men in such a way that they may see your good works. Look at this. And glorify your father who is in heaven. Say salt and light. Let's talk about salt and light. We could say this. Are you tasteless and hidden? Hmm? Are you full flavored and out in the open? Are you displaying Jesus? Salt and light. Now, I I did this little study. You You know me. I'm always digging around and looking at history and stuff. But you know that in ancient times, salt wasn't something that was easily accessible. I mean, now we just have it sitting on shakers on uh, you know, and and now it's like, oh, oh, I don't just do that little shaker from Morton. Like I get special stuff. It's pink, and it's Himalayan, and it's black, and it's all these things. And we're we're like, wow, I got all these exotic salts, and it's amazing, right? Well, in ancient times, it wasn't something that was easily accessible, which made it very, very valuable. Salt was actually used in as a monetary uh, piece of, of exchange. And for trade, actually, do you know that it was used in religious ceremonies by the Egyptians? This is how wonderful this substance was to the Egyptians. It was used in trade. It was used as a commodity. Uh, it was an essential part of diet and still is. Do you know without salt, you'll die? I know your doctors don't, don't do the salt. Don't do the salt. But you have to have some salt. If you don't have salt, you will die. It's just the way it works. Salt was of crucial importance economically. You ever heard of this expression, not worth his salt? You know where that comes from? It stems from the practice of they would trade slaves for salt in ancient Greece. And if that slave didn't measure up or that servant didn't measure up to your expectations, you would say, he's not worth his salt. In other words, he's not worth what I paid for him. Isn't that cool? Also, special salt rations were given to the early Roman soldiers. This literally was a form of payment. Like, you've done a great job. I'm going to give you some salt. You'd be like, can you imagine that? You, you go on Friday, you go to get your check, and like, here's a bag of salt. Doing a great job. You're like, excuse me, I need money, right? I need some cash. I need some of that paper that's not worth anything, so I can exchange. Anyway. But listen to this. They gave him these special salt rations known as salarium argentum. That's where we get the English word salary. How many are on salary? Not Salary. That's another thing I don't want. Don't pay me with celery, please. I love fruit and vegetables, but give me some money. That's where these come from. References to salt can be found in languages around the globe, and particularly regarding salt used for food. So again, salt was this important trading commodity carried by explorers. I did this quick search while I was studying this. Where did the term salt of the earth come from? You heard this? I know it's getting real salty here today. But, but I want us to see why Jesus was calling us the salt. I want us to get this, this idea. Let's go back to ancient time. What were they, when these people were gathering there and, and listening to Jesus and following Jesus and hearing this message, and, and he says, you are salt, what were they thinking? Not, oh, I'm, not, I'm, I'm something on a table. No, no, this goes so much deeper than that. But that term, salt of the earth, and this is what it said, an individual or group considered as representative of the best or noblest elements of society. That's pretty powerful. Being described by someone as salt of the earth is quite a compliment. It says this, it means that you are a person of great worth and reliability. Now think about Salt. I mean, literally, when Jesus used this analogy and he says, you are salt, he was saying, you are valuable. Because salt was used for trade. Salt was used to make payments or pay salaries. But then he says something interesting. He says, if you lose your saltiness and become tasteless, it's not worth anything anymore. We might as well just throw it out and it be trampled under the foot of men. Now think about this word tasteless. Just a quick dictionary search. The first definition is lacking flavor. Here's the example. The vegetables were watery and tasteless. How many love watery and tasteless vegetables? Put your hands down. Like Flavor those babies up, please, and then I'll eat them. But look at the second definition. Considered to be lacking in aesthetic judgment or to offend against what is regarded as appropriate behavior. Example, a tasteless joke. Now, as I read this, something struck me to the core. I thought, how is it that we are presenting the gospel? How is it that we're presenting Jesus? Is it tasteful or is it tasteless? Because some people would say, well, I've heard that story. I've heard that gospel. I've heard that message before, and I want nothing to do with it. Why? Well, really, they could say, well, because that person was tasteless when they shared it with me. But Jesus says, you are salt. He says, you are light. Let your light shine before men in such a way, I love that translation, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Okay, so again, Jesus says, you are the salt. Say that with me. You are the salt. He says, you are the light. Say that with me. You are the light. So season and shine. That's, that's really what we're to do. We're to provide seasoning and, and we're to shine. Now, we also know that salt preserves, right? It can heal, right? Now, think about what salvation is. Healing, wholeness, deliverance. Preservation, literally, you are bearing the salt and light of salvation in your life. Or are we? Are we tasteless? Are we? Are we hiding the message and the goodness of Father from people by putting something over top of it? Our own, you know, self worth, thinking we're not worthy enough. Our own actions that are lived out of that false identity. Do you see where we're going with this? It's so important that we see that we are salt and we are light. But another thing that's interesting here and. And I do this a lot because when we read the scriptures, you have to read scriptures in context. You have to understand the context. You have to know who is it written to? Why was it written? Who was writing it? All these things matter. Because some people think, man, I read this scripture in in Corinthians, man, and Paul was talking directly to me. It was to me. No, it was for you. You didn't live in Corinth 2,000 years ago. If you did, then you are, wow, I want your diet plan and exercise because... Two thousand years is pretty crazy. Now, is scripture valuable? Absolutely. I learned so much by digging into it, but sometimes we make every scripture about me in 2020. Someone dropped the mic, I think. In 2020, but it's not, it's not to you, it's for you. So when Jesus was saying these words, I want us to think, who was he talking to? The crowd? Jews and Gentiles, there were Gentiles who were following. I want us to picture this. So he's on this small mountain, and he's speaking all these things. And, and these people who are there are not us, it's them, right? Now think about this. None of those that were there, those, those that he was talking to, had been the Bible school, right? None of them were American citizens, Right? Uh, none of them ever stepped foot into a New Testament church after the cross, burial, and resurrection. Am I right? Okay. Um, None of them even heard of the sinner's prayer. In fact, there's no sinner's prayer in the Bible. Did you know that? It said they would preach the gospel, they would hear it, and they would believe. Nothing against the sinner's prayer. It's about just under 200 years old. It was a way of evangelism that, that I'm trying to think of the brother that came up with it. He would go on a horseback and he would preach. Nothing wrong with it. But what I'm saying is, it's not just about saying words and praying prayers. It's about believing something in your heart of hearts. Right? But think about this. No one there was a Christian. It didn't exist. Jews and Gentiles, Right? They followed Jesus up a little mountain, and they did just heard him say things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the mourning, those who are mourning, the meek, the hungry, those who are hungry for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and those persecuted for righteousness' sake. In fact, those persecuted for my sake. He says, blessed are you, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. Now, it doesn't take away the fact that we are as well, but who is he speaking to? I I want us to see this this morning, right? The people to whom Jesus was speaking had very little ability to, to market or sell themselves or their ministries. They didn't have any. They didn't have major influence in their world most of them were poor. Most of them were starving. A lot of them were following Jesus because, yes, he had a great message, but I also heard that he does miracles and he provides food for us because we're starving. The Romans are taking everything we have and we've been given rations and we barely have enough to live. We're starving under Roman occupation. I want us to get the sense of what's going on. And Jesus looks at these people and he says, You are the salt. You are the light. You picking this up? They weren't leaders in megachurches, right? They, they, they didn't have the things that we would say, okay, they're an awesome Christian because of, and we have all these things that we fill out. We have this list of things. They were Jews and Gentiles, some starving, no position, some slaves, some barely making it. And Jesus says, you are He was trying to give them a sense of identity, who they were. See, we are inclined to think that we are most powerful and influential when we can sell ourselves, manage our world, and manipulate the people around us. That's Western thinking. It's not the gospel. It's not the way of Jesus. See, Jesus seems to think just the opposite. See, Jesus says that we are salt and we are light. He encourages us to do good works in order to show the goodness of the Father, right? But instead of being full of flavor and revelation to those around us, again, we tend to try and sell ourselves. We try to manage our world and we try sometimes, some of us, to manipulate the people around us. Listen, this isn't the gospel. This isn't the Jesus way. Now, Jesus was speaking to people who still didn't yet understand who they were. And I believe that some of us this morning still don't understand who we are. Right? For us, it's funny when people say, you know, who are you? The first thing that we do is we go on the list of the things we've accomplished. Because we think we're sum total of our actions or successes or what we've accomplished in life. But see, it should be the other way around. Jesus came to show you who you truly were. You were a son and daughter of God. You were lost. The apostle Paul talks, talks so much about son, sonship, which is both male and female, about sonship and being orphans. How many of the orphans don't know who their family is? And so Jesus, the apostles and Paul, they were trying to awaken us. To our righteousness is what they say. What is righteousness? It's right relationship. Awaken you to right relationship. It's always been there. It's always been provided. God didn't go anywhere. We did. That's why Paul says we were enemies of God in our minds. God never considered us enemies. You know how I know that? Jesus says to love your enemies. In other words, if you feel you're an enemy of God, I love you. That's pretty powerful right there. And then we are to take that message and eventually, through love of enemies, realize I really don't have any enemies. I think I said it last week that for me, the more that I see that people are acting out of a false identity, the easier it is for me to just forgive and walk on and move on and say that person's reacting to me the way they do because they just don't know who they are. I mean, there's some dysfunction, there's some brokenness, they need healing. So instead of getting mad at them, my heart goes out toward them. Now listen, I have those days where I'm like, oh my gosh, I could just punch that person out. I'm being honest, I felt that way, okay? So this isn't about perfection, but what it is, it's seeing God in everyone. Listen, the Apostle Paul said, in him we live, move, and have our being, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, right? The Word was God. And you know what? Everything was created through Him. If you're walking around and functioning today, it's either magic or it's the power of God. I'm going to go with power of God. But man, we, we have got to awaken to who we are. Listen, if you don't believe something, you won't walk in it. That's why belief is so necessary. That's why when we have these talks, we're, we're trying to point you to who you are, the scriptures, Jesus, the apostles. This is what they say about us. Sure, they were speaking to others at the time, but look at the people that Jesus was telling. You're the salt and you're the light. They, they hadn't gone to a Christian church service. They, I mean, this stuff is what Boggles my mind at times. It's the way that God sees us before we even know who we are. While we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. He displayed full display of love on a cross. Why? To say I love you. Will you receive relationship with me? He doesn't hate you. He's not mad at you. He wants you to awaken to who you are. And I know people go, well, yeah, I mean, but I got issues. Welcome to the club. Yeah, it's called the issues club. It's called humanity. The only way to get out of those issues is to awaken to who you are. And so that's what Jesus and the apostles were trying to do. But again, instead of being full-flavored and a revelation to those around us, we tend to try and sell ourselves, manage our world, and manipulate the people around us. Now listen to me. To sell love, it's one word, prostitution. Prostitution. The kingdom doesn't sell love. It is love. It just gives love. It's what love does. Because to sell love is prostitution. To manage love is to turn love into law. You deserve it. You don't. Oh, we got to manage some love. You don't get quite, quite that much because you haven't been good lately. No, no, no. Love is fully given, undiluted, unconditional now, that's scary to some of us because we're like, but, but they don't deserve it. Who of us always does? That's the beauty of the gospel. You don't earn it. You might not even deserve it, but it's freely given. To manipulate love is to counteract the life of love. Whenever there's control and manipulation in there, that's not true love. Right? That's manipulation. When we try to sell love, when we try to manage love or manipulate love, we have completely missed the point. We have become tasteless in our proclamation of God's love. I like how that plays out, right? It's just tasteless. It's like a tasteless joke at a dinner party. Have you, ever, have you ever been going down a, a street corner and you're just loving life and you're loving people and, and God bless these people. Sometimes they're more sold out than, than we can be. But man, the bullhorns come out and there's signs and there's just all this hatred being spewed in the name of God and it just cringes me. Like to the bone, I'm like, what are you doing? You're calling people filthy and rotten and no good and unworthy. And then you're like, so do you wanna hear about Jesus? No, they don't. The only time that I've seen in the gospels, how many are followers of Jesus here? I, I, I really, I really try to read scripture and what does Jesus do in these situations? And I've never once seen Jesus turn a sinner away or say they're filthy or rotten. He says things like this. Hey, what? You're forgiven. But I'm forgiven. Yeah. Now rise and walk. He delivered healing. I've said this before, but the reason I believe that Jesus says you're forgiven is for many of us, we can't receive his love or his goodness or healing in our life if we don't think we're worthy of it. And so one of the first things he would say is, your sins are forgiven you. Now, he was a rabbi. Do you realize this? He was seen as a rabbi, and rabbis would say these things, but there was a set of, of a list that you would have to go through in order to be forgiven, and Jesus would just walk up and go, hey, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. What? Are you serious? Yeah, you're forgiven. What do you need? What, what do you need to receive from me right now? That's the greatest proclamation of all time to me, that he remembers your sin no more. And you know, at first it was scary because I'm like, he does is, is, is he have amnesia? No, it's a choice. Why? So that you feel worthy enough to approach him Because you know you have issues. You know you have things in your life. But the only way you're going to get help is if you're able to approach the one who can help you. Does that make sense? But he says he remembers your sin no more. And what I found in my own life, it doesn't cause me to say, all right, man, I got some sinning to do. No, I'm like, seriously, it's that good? And it's almost by accident, the more that I receive his love and forgiveness and realize the position that I have with him, that I begin to make different decisions. Why? Because I feel worthy. I'm not built for that. I'm not made for that. I'm worthy. I'm making different decisions in my life. And it's not even because I feel like I got to or else. It's just who I am. That's what happens when you start to live out of true self. As long as you live out of false identity. See, I say this a lot, but whose story are you believing about yourself? Because God's telling you a story about yourself. But so are you about yourself. And so are others about yourself. Whose story will you believe? How many know God is love? How many know that the word of God is Jesus Christ, John tells us, right? Right? And they're the light of the world. And yet, to these people, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. This is a very powerful statement. Now listen, you aren't Jesus, but you're in union with him. Does that make sense? I don't have to be Jesus. Jesus is with me. He's in me. And I'm allowing him to live his life through me because he doesn't force that to happen. Does that make sense? But he talks as if these people on this mountain, hearing this This, you know, um, Sermon on the Mount, he, he believes or he's talking to them as if they are his body then and there, as if the real you is him. He's showing this connection. And that's why I love when Paul says, in him we live, move, and have our being. We are all the genos, that's Greek, which means the, um, the genealogy or the offspring of God. That's where you've come from, but you've been lost. You need to awaken. Stop serving all these other gods. They're not gonna do anything for you, but there's one true God, one true source, Father Origin, and he loves you. And you need to awaken to who you are. I think this brings a whole new meaning to Paul's assertion that we are each part of his body. We're the body of Christ. If the real you is the thing that shines, then the you that doesn't let it shine must be the false you or the false identity. We could say the bushel basket, the thing that we put over the light. Can you see how this works? Jesus is telling the people there, and I believe us here this morning, that you are the salt and you are the light, but if you don't believe it, You'll never walk in it. You'll be tasteless and you'll cover up. And for a lot of us, it's because we don't feel we're worthy. We don't feel like we measure up. That was my biggest issue in life. I just didn't feel like I measured up. I ran away from the church, from everything I could that had anything to do with religion on it when I was 19 because I feel, felt like I could not measure up. And I tried to find fulfillment in other things. Now, I never lost a sense of, I never was atheist. I never felt there wasn't a God. I just felt there's a God and I can't measure up. So I'm going to just, I'm going to tour the world. I'm just going to be a rock and roll star. I'm just going to do whatever. I'm going to drown it out with whatever I can because I'm not worthy. I can't do it. But, But I knew I was called to be salt and light. I knew I had a calling in my life, but I felt like I don't measure up. I can't be that perfect guy behind the pulpit. Well, guess what? Not everyone's perfect. No one's perfect. If perfection is what was necessary to lead a church, there would be no leaders in the church. But it was years of Holy Spirit working on my heart and saying, "You are worthy." But but I've done these things and I've, I've seen these things, and I've said these things. He's like, yeah, but that's not who you are. You're operating out of false identity. You, you just don't know who you are. Let me show you who you are. You're accepted. You're holy. You're pleasing. I mean, these are the things that the Holy Spirit was showing me. You're pleasing. You're, you're acceptable. You have purpose. You're worthy. And it starts to make you feel like, I'm, I'm somebody, That's the only way I was able to say yes when they offered me, you know, the the pastorate. It's like, sure, even with my imperfections, let's do this thing and let's do it together. And I think there's no better way to do life together than to just be honest and transparent. We all have issues, but man, I look back at who I was. I'm not the same person. It just changes your heart. And you get to this point where God's worked on you to the point where you start to begin to truly see who you are and then suddenly you realize that you're seeing people through different eyes. You're seeing them through the eyes of father and it just, it changes everything. That's why for me, like I don't get caught up in political sides. I don't get caught up in the color of skin. I don't get caught up in lifestyle. Listen, I'll hang out with anybody because I know what brought change to my life. And I believe that Holy Spirit is big enough to work it out in every single person's life. I don't have to change them. My job is not to change people. It's to show them who they are. Connect them with the source, with their Father, with the divine. When that happens, something will happen. And it may be different than I I would think, but it's what Holy Spirit wants to do in the lives of others. Does that make sense? So it does take the pressure off. It takes the load off because I used to think, well, I got to, I'm in charge, man. I'm the pastor. I got to, I'm in charge of making sure people change. Whew. Do you know how much work that was? Man, if my job was to preach against sin, I mean, I heard one guy say it's whack-a-mole preaching. <laughs> it's like you look out and you're like, what's going on in the congregation now? It's like, whack, whack. Oh, what's going on now? Whack. You ever played the game of Chuck E. Cheese. Right? And you get three tickets, you're like, are you kidding me? I just did a 30-minute workout and I got three tickets? It's not worth it. But see, when the message is the love of God and who you truly are, guess what? Change begins to happen because it's a heart change. It's not just a change where, oh, I guess I maybe should. Right? People convinced against their will are of the same opinion still. So I can use fear and control and manipulation to get you to act Better, or I can show you who you truly are through Jesus, through Scripture, through the apostles. And as you see that, what happens, your heart changes. And what's the outflow of that? True identity, fruit of the Spirit, good works. It's awesome. So, again, if the real you is the thing that shines, the new you that doesn't let it shine must be the false you. It must be that bushel basket, the thing we use to measure ourselves, the thing that we produce whenever and wherever we try to sell, manage, and manipulate others and ourselves. We can say the alter ego, the false identity. I love what Paul says in Corinthians. He says, For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who is shown in our hearts, say in our hearts, To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Say, I'm an earthen vessel. So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. That takes the pressure off. We're told that things grow because God causes them to grow. Not because we're trying really hard to make it grow. That's why Jesus invites us to rest. It's so important that, and sometimes we have to labor to enter the rest because we feel, well, what's my part? What's my part? Your part is to abide. It's to be there. It's to be present. It's to rest. And when you do, the outflow of that is good works. The outflow of that is fruit. When your alter ego is shattered, but you continue to love in truth, you continue to speak the truth in love, guess what? The world can see Jesus in you. I was thinking of this idea of these earthen vessels. At this point, it's like the light shines through the cracks of these earthen vessels. So you don't even think, well, I'm broken. I have issues. That's great. Because with brokenness, guess what shines through? Light. Sometimes it's like we can't own that. No, no, no. If someone comes up to you and says, how are you doing, brother? Blessed and highly favored. That's a great faith statement. But is it true all the time? Are you always blessed? Now I get We have all blessings. We have all things for life and godliness. Okay? Don't get religious on me. Every day do you wake up beaming with a smile, feeling the best you've ever felt? We were watching a movie last night, and uh, the, the lady was dating this guy, and like he never had a, he was just too happy. just like all the time, I'm like, this is not for real, like this isn't real life. Sometimes we need to own that, wow, I have issues, I have broken this. But Jesus came to restore and to heal me, and so he'll work on that. But how does he do that? By letting his light shine through those broken cracks of the vessel. That's so cool. And let me say this to you. You are more beautiful than you know. Sometimes we think, well, I'm broken, so that means I'm not worthy and I'm not beautiful. No, no, no. You're more beautiful than you know. This is how God sees you. You, the vulnerable, the authentic, and the real you, are God's masterpiece. Paul says this in Ephesians. He says, for we are God's handiwork. One translation says masterpiece. Say, I'm a masterpiece. Look at this. Created in who? Christ Jesus to do what? Good works. So really, there, there's no excuse. We're created in Christ Jesus to do good works, but we first have to see what? That we are a masterpiece. Masterpiece. That we're more beautiful than we can even see at times. Because it's so easy to look in the mirror and say, wow, the years haven't been good to me. Right? Whether it's physical or emotional. But what this verse is saying is, listen, you are a masterpiece. You're created in Christ Jesus to do those good works which God prepared when? In advance for us to do. He already knew who you would be. He already knew the best version of yourself. You are a beautiful masterpiece and you are revealed as God's handiwork when you display a life of salt and light. Say, I'm a little salty. Say, I'm a lot of light. That's who you are. I wrote this down. It's a life of tasty goodness and revelation of God's love. Have you ever met someone like that? Like, they walk into a room and you're like, what is it about them? Like, you just want to be near them. I, I believe Jesus was like that. People just wanted to, I mean, Jesus had people following him, starving people, <laughs> right? Following him all over. There was something that exuded from him. It was love. It was acceptance. It was grace. It was goodness. Have you ever met someone like that? And it's like, I just like being in their presence. See, to me, there's salt and light, you they 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 taste good if that makes sense what they say there's like seasoning on their words it just it feels good it tastes good it's right you know they're a light it seems like they light up a room when they walk in that's in you and that's in me but for some of us i don't think it's on purpose like i'm gonna hide this i don't want anyone to know about god's goodness no what happens is we don't feel we're worthy to display his goodness And by what we've seen today, you are a beautiful masterpiece. Now, the Greek term translated good work or good works here is also translated beautiful deeds. I like that. Now, when you look in Matthew here, where he says good work, beautiful deeds, it's used in one other place in the Gospel of Matthew. How many remember the story of uh, the woman? She was most likely a prostitute who came in, and she had this alabaster jar, and she broke it. One translation or one gospel says um, she put it on his feet. Two other gospels, including Matthew, say that she poured it over his head. Now, if you're not familiar with Judaism, this was called anointing somebody. So kings and priests and prophets would be anointed for their position By oil, it would run over their head and down their beard. And this was a symbol they would use. So literally, this lady was coming in, this prostitute, this sinner was coming in to, by the way, a Pharisee's house, a religious leader's house. And it said that Jesus was just chilling. It said he was just, he was laying back and just relaxing. She comes in, she breaks this alabaster jar of perfumed oils and she pours it over her head. In other words, she's anointing him before his his, um, death and burial. Because she knew something. She believed it was the Messiah. And you know that the cost, many scholars say the cost of that alabaster bottle, that perfumed oil, was about a year's wages. Now let's just, let's, let's just go like, you know, I don't know, minimum on that. What's a minimum wage? $15,000, $20,000 a year? Right? And you're like, I couldn't live on that. I get it, but some do. Some single moms live on 15000 $20,000 a year. You're like, what? How is that even possible? But think about what if that was 20 or 30 or 60,000 dollars? I said that they were complaining. that could have been sold and money given to the poor. And Jesus says, "No, no, no. She has done a beautiful deed by anointing me. When you saw her come in, there was no, you know, selling how good she was or how much she measured up. There was no managing things saying, yeah, I think I'm doing pretty good in life. There was no manipulation. I mean, she had nothing. I mean, again, they considered that the scholars say that she was probably a prostitute, scum of the earth. But yet she comes in and Jesus allows this. She just ignored the crowd as she surrendered to the light of love shining in the eyes of Jesus. Because she she knew there was one place she could find acceptance through Jesus. The incarnation, God in flesh. All these religious leaders shut her out. Yet the God of the universe, inhabiting flesh, says, I accept you. I receive you. I was thinking about this. Was she possibly at the base of that mountain when Jesus was delivering his words? I mean, there had to be some contact. There had to be, she had to know, she didn't just randomly pick a house and go in and break a thirty, forty, $60,000 alabaster jar of perfumed oils and pour it on some dude's head. There was something about Jesus. I believe that she was a follower of Jesus. Oh yeah, Jesus had female disciples, by the way. Can I get an amen for the ladies? Do you know that ladies financed the ministry of Jesus? It's pretty cool history. Jesus did what he did and ministered the way he did because the women, the ladies, supported him. And we tell them they can only work with the kids and maybe sing if they're lucky. (laughs) Messing with some religious spirits right there. That's what happens when we take scripture out of context, right? The woman is beneath me. not according to Jesus. All right, I'll let that lie right now. I'm just saying. But I thought about this lady. I mean, she was really the... Salt of the earth. He was saying, You have done a beautiful deed in the Greek. You have done a kalos ergon, a beautiful deed. You're the salt and the light. You are allowing me to shine through to you. And in essence, what happens? What happens? He shines through us. Jesus was changing lives before the cross, folks. There was forgiveness and grace and healing. Jesus was demonstrating what kingdom looked like. The cross was the ultimate display of love. No greater love does a man have than this than to lay his life down for another. Men killed Jesus. But God raised him from the dead as vindication that the way you're living is not right. It's not Jesus' way. It's not kingdom way. It's a kingdom of righteousness, which is right relationship, peace, joy, love, grace, healing, forgiveness, restoration. See, the world has this whole idea that it's about getting back. It's hatred, greed, anger, retribution. But the kingdom is such a different way to live. It's going completely against the grain of love when you live the way of the world. But Jesus invites us to a different way, a way of love, amen? Say this with me, I am salt and light. Say this, I am tasty goodness, and I reveal the love of God. And I want you to say this and mean it, I am worthy. Say it again, I am worthy. Did you receive that this morning? I just want to open it up for just a few minutes.
0: You said that Jesus went around and just loved on people and forgave them. Now, according to popular belief and maybe misinformation, can you explain how he did that when they didn't ask, they didn't confess? Can you explain how their sins were forgiven? Yeah.
1: Well, well, the word confession in the Greek is to say the same thing as another. So, when literally when we say confess your sin, what does God say about your sin? It's forgiven. See, we get this idea, and a lot of it came from St. Augustine. It's about 1,500 years old. A lot of these ideas of penal substitutionary atonement that's when that came through, and he really pressed that. Um, And then some other. Others have gotten a hold of it, and it's a pretty big movement. Calvinism has come out of that. And so, you know, God makes some for heaven, and he makes some for hell, which to me is an atrocious doctrine, that God would create anybody for hell, for his glory. That does not make any sense to me. And I've talked to Calvinists, who my love and are my friends, and basically I just said, well, if that's how God is, I'd rather go to hell than spend eternity with a psycho like that. What's that? Right. So I choose to believe that there's a God who completely loves us. Now, he doesn't force relationship on us. That's not what love does. So to me, confession is when you're agreeing with. See, Jesus came to reveal who we truly were, and so when we see who we truly are, we begin to confess or say. Now, here's another thing. It says that in Romans that we're supposed to confess Jesus as Lord, right? So we've turned that into a prayer. But a lot of us don't realize that that Christianity was actually using Roman propaganda. How many have heard Jesus is Lord? Well, there was a common thing being said then. It was Caesar is Lord. There is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved. Who's that name? If you're in Rome, the name would have been Caesar. It's Roman propaganda. They were taking what people knew and understood, and they were literally saying, there's a new king in town. Do you think that the disciples and the followers of Christ were crucified, boiled in oil, and fed the lions because they were talking about afterlife message? Romans didn't care about that. They were saying there's a new king in town. There's a new kingdom. How many know kings don't like their kingdom being taken over? Is this making sense? So the idea of confessing Jesus as Lord, to me, It's a continual thing. Because what we think is we confess one time and then we are saved. We're sozoed, right? Salvation, soteria in the Greek. But that word literally means salvation, right? Of course. But preservation, safety, healing, wholeness, deliverance, rescue. How many of areas of your life that you have experienced that in every single facet of your life? I haven't. Do you know what the apostle said to those being saved? My point is, salvation's an ongoing process. And here's what happens. As you begin to see that in your life, what happens? You begin to agree with, you begin to confess Jesus as Lord. No, Jesus is Lord of my life. He has healed me. He has brought restoration. He has brought deliverance to my life. In each facet of your life, it's like we have this... this soul with all these little thrones of different things, and we're declaring Jesus as Lord of those spaces and those places. And how many know that doesn't happen one time in a service when you're eight years old? That's a lifetime of confession. Does that make sense? So they're literally saying, I confess Jesus as Lord of every area of my life, and it's going to take the rest of my life to see that play out. Does that make sense? Another question? We don't talk enough at home.
0: Um, And I was thinking about what Kristen said along with it. And then when you were talking in one of the series about, um, I think it was when you were talking about the man, you know, waiting to get in the pool. So I had a pastor's wife say to me one time that Jesus didn't heal everybody. He just walked over sick people to heal the people that he was called to heal. Like when he got to the pool, right? There was a lot of sick people there, but Jesus only healed that one person. And I've really mulled that over. I, I'm not sure what to believe, to be honest. But right. I, I think that anybody who asked Jesus to heal him, Jesus would heal. That was my belief.
1: Yeah, there's a lot going on there. And you have to also remember this, that there's four Gospels. How many are aware of that? Um, each gospel was to a certain group of people. Um, they, wrote it, they wrote it for specific reasons, and they added certain stories, or they took certain stories out for reasons, depending on if they're writing to the Jew or the Gentile. Johns was way out there, like, whoo, right? Like, he's the guy that got the revelation and all that. But what I'm saying is, sometimes what we do is we try to read stuff, and we try to take everything for face value it's tough to do sometimes. I don't, when you dig in sometimes, you're like, oh, that's why the author put it that way. Because one author says it one way. It's funny when people say the, the Bible has no contradictions. It's like they're all over the place. Just look at Chronicles and look at Kings. It's the same story with changed things. So I don't have an issue with that. It's different people in their viewpoint. The Gospels say things in different ways. Just because there's contradictions doesn't mean it's not true. But what is the reason that they wrote it? And thats I mean, that gets really deep. That, that goes deeper than a Sunday morning conversation. But, you know, this is a response because I don't have the answer. I wish that every person you prayed for was just healed, right? Um, I don't always understand all that. I just choose to believe God, serve God, and stay the course and have faith that he has the best interest. But, you know, we don't, we don't have all the answers on all that. And there's so much. I'm still discovering new things in the Gospels. And there's different perspectives. And there's a reason that they wrote it. There, there was a motivation behind it. It was to get people to believe in Jesus. But how they said it might have been different than how the other apostles said it. Or how Luke, Dr. Luke said it, who actually wrote um, Acts as well. Can I say? Yeah. On somebody saying that, you know, Jesus walked over people to heal that person. That's the only story recorded. We don't know what Jesus did. He might have walked around after that recording and healed everybody in that pool. That's my answer to them. You don't know that he walked over sick people and didn't heal them. Well, and there's you know there's people that just
0: be healed mm-hmm. from their shadow, mm-hmm. you know. So then I think, well, if their shadow healed people, I mean, Jesus' presence in itself yeah. um, would be so powerful.
1: We just, I mean, for me, I just, I don't, un- that's a place where I go and I don't understand it all. I know that the Apostle John said that if, if we were tried to try to record everything that Jesus did in his lifetime, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to handle it and to hold it. So I think there's a lot more going on. We're just getting a glimpse of things. And it's kind of like, you ever seen those movies where, like, you'll see part of the movie and then it shifts from a different angle or vantage point and they see it completely different? I think we're getting vantage points of stuff. And that's why I think that even though the canon's closed on Scripture, I believe that the Holy Spirit's still revealing revelation and things to us here and now. And so we take what that was revealed to them. Because, I mean, we talked about this before, but I, I want to take the revelation of Jesus or the revelation of Joshua. I mean, Joshua's at a certain place, right? And he would say things that, I mean, Jesus even went against the, the major big prophet Elijah, and said, Elijah did some things wrong. Jesus said that. So we're all on a journey and we're all learning. But some of that stuff, there's really, this is a response because I don't have the answer.
0: Okay, back to my original question. Sorry. Huh. So first John 1, 9 says, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That was my point to my first question as oh. people weren't confessing or asking right. for forgiveness, but he forgave them anyway.
1: Well, that scripture has been used for years as we call it the Christian bar of soap. Right? Like, if you mess up, what do you do? You confess your sin, then he forgives you. So the first time wasn't good enough, apparently. But see, we have to look at context. When when John wrote 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, there was a major issue going on in the church. There were, have anyone heard of the Gnostics? So Gnosticism was was a, a, playing a major part. So, you know, John, he's probably. Some scholars believe he's around 80 years old or so. I mean, he's seen a lot. I mean, he walked with Jesus as a teenager, and he's lived another 70-some years preaching the gospel, starting churches, um, you know, in this area. And these Gnostics start coming in, and they have some crazy ideas. Like, for instance, they said that Jesus wasn't truly God in flesh. They said there's no way because God can't inhabit or be in a body because bodies are full of sin. Uh, They would say things like, there is no sin. It's just, they had these weird, that's why he would say, if you say that, that you're without sin, you make God a liar. But then he says, if you confess with your mouth, right, or you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you. To me, what he's saying to them is you have to start confessing that first of all, yes, there is sin and yes, you are in sin, but Jesus takes care of that. So confess, what does he say about your sin? Because these are people who weren't even believing sin existed. They were all about knowledge. That, that Gnostic comes from the word, I believe in the Greek, uh, knowledge or gnosis. And so it was all about the more knowledge you get, you go to these other like spiritual planes and then you're better than other people. Just this weird doctrine. And so he was really coming against that. It was a pretty fiery letter, to be honest with you. He's like, what are you doing? You're destroying everything that, I, that I've set up so far by bringing this Gnosticism in. And so when he says that, he's basically leading people to the gospel saying, listen, Admit that you have sin in your life, admit that there's an issue, admit that you're broken, but when you do, you confess that that's forgiven and now you can have a relationship. But there was no relationship because they were just off on some other plane. So does that help explain that? So it's not a Christian, listen guys, I used to go to sleep at night and I would be like, okay, and I would have to go through the list in my head of every sin I committed I mean, my prayer was like this, Uh, forgive me for saying that to my mom, forgive me for doing this, forgive me for that, forgive me for anything I can't remember, forgive me for, I'm I'm being honest, It, it was terrifying, because if I died in my sleep, would I end up in hell? And so it was fear. But when I realized, wait a minute, I'm completely forgiven, and I'm confessing that I'm forgiven. Now, is it okay to say you're sorry? Of course. I mean, you know how many times I said, man, God, I, I completely acted out of character in who I am there. That is not who I am. I shouldn't have responded to that person like that. I'm truly sorry, God. But it's not from like this, this terror and fear that if I were to die tonight, if I were to walk out today and get hit by a Mack truck, what would happen? Well, I'd be in the arms of my Savior. That's what would happen. And so it's not about, I mean, do you think you can c- confess every single sin you've ever done? Come on. But what it's doing is saying the same thing as God says about your sin. It's forgiven. It's a done deal. Was the sacrifice of Jesus powerful enough or not? But you have to believe it in order to receive it and then walk in it. But as a Christian, just go around confessing every little sin. Listen, be sorry. Have a godly remorse for things that you've done wrong that are out of character. My God, don't be afraid of your father. Don't be terrified of your heavenly father. Let me pray for you guys. (music)